Well, good morning, church. We want to give a good morning to Northridge, Cactus, and Chapel, and certainly to all of you who are watching us online. But we're going to be starting a, a new series, as was mentioned earlier today, uh, called When Jesus Appears. We're, for the next six weeks, we're going to take a look at the uh, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that appear in the Gospel of John. And, and, and it's going to be a wonderful look for us. We're going to tie it, as you'll see in about five minutes uh, during our introduction, we're going to tie it to our spiritual lives today and, you know, wrestle with how do we experience Jesus in his post-resurrection state now that he's ascended to heaven based on, though, his appearances here on earth. You'll see more of what we do with that in a minute. But I think it can be a very powerful, rich series of messages for all of us. And so I'm so glad you joined us for that uh, today and hope you do in the coming weeks. And then after this series, uh, in late May, we're going to spend another six weeks. We're going to do another six-week series that you're going to want to notch away now because it's going to be a perfect series to invite your friends to uh, called The Battle Within or something like that. We're still working on the title, but basically The Battle Within. And I mentioned this before, but coming out of COVID, uh, there are so many people beat up and hurting and lonely and dealing with a lot of their own internal demons, if you will. And we're going to take a look at some of those things. We're going to take a look at disappointment, fear, hurt, anger, depression, and look at what God's word says about how God can help us become victorious in those things and to deal with them effectively in our lives. So it'd be a great series for you to introduce somebody to Jesus as well as Scottsdale Bible Church, and we'll give you more on that as we go along. So next three months, for those of you who are high control people and like to know where we're going, now you do. Next three months, you're all set, and it's going to be quite a ride for our church and, uh, and, and just want you to know we love you and continue to teach God's word very faithfully. So with that said, let's pray and then we're going to dive into this series we're starting today. God, I thank you for the amazing grace and love that you have shown us in your son, Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see today, even through the giving of your Holy Spirit, and God, I pray that you might meet us, each one of us now, in our worship, in our tender hearts before you, and speak to us as we open up the very words of Jesus and look at, at, at these post-resurrection experiences. God, we love you. We want to know you in deeper and richer ways. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use your word to accomplish that purpose, and may you be glorified in and through our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was thinking about it this week, I thought, you know, I have yet to meet a Christian or really anybody on planet Earth for that matter who doesn't wish that God would make a personal, physical appearance just once to them this side of heaven. Can you relate? I actually used that phrase with God over the years just once. I've said to him, Lord, you know, I've known you for 40 years. Just once, just make it, even if it's for five seconds, God, just show up, give me a physical appearance. And if you do that, God, I have said, I would never doubt you again. It would calm all of my fears. It would bolster my faith. And I'll never ask you to do it again. Just once, a personal, physical appearance. Now, never mind the fact that most all the players in the Bible who did receive some sort of personal, physical presence of God from Moses 
to Elijah, to the 12 disciples, to Paul the apostle, and many more. Never mind the fact that they still struggled with doubts and with fear and, and, and with their faith. Nevertheless, the vast majority of sincere followers of Jesus today that I rub shoulders with would just love it. And my guess is you too, to have Jesus just once physically appear to them this side of heaven. And before some of you very holy people, because I know how you think, start to judge the rest of us, because there's some of you saying right now, well, I don't want that. I have a strong faith. I don't know what's wrong with you. Before you start to say that, here's what you need to know. And that's, that is that this longing to have God and Jesus physically and personally appear to us is completely natural. And from a biblical perspective, it's expected. Did you know that? You should never feel guilty for that. It's natural and expected. The Bible says that while we're in this body, we long, we even groan to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling and to see him face to face. We were made for the unveiled presence of God. And though now this side of heaven, as the old King James says, we see through a glass darkly, God's original creation intent was that we would walk in a garden with him face to face, hand in hand. And so it's a good thing to desire the physical, personal presence of the Lord in our lives. And here's the good news. As you and I wait to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, to see him face to face, which will happen in heaven, the Bible, meanwhile, gives us some living pictures of times when God and Jesus have physically appeared. And these glimpses, now don't miss this, of his physical presence, contained profound clues signposts, if you will, on how you and I can draw closer to Jesus in real and abiding ways, ways that can actually make some headway in our experience of him. That's what this series is going to be about. We're going to take a look at these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and we're going to bounce off of them into our own spiritual lives today, and you're going to be blown away as they point us to things that we can do in our faith today that can draw us closer in our experience with him. And so this series could truly be watershed for many of us who have this longing inside of us to know him more. So let's get started right now with no further introduction, and let's do a quick flyover of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and I'm going to give you a few fast facts about them so that we can all get on the same page, because this isn't complicated stuff. Fast facts about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Here's fast fact number one. There's at least 10 of them recorded in the New Testament, and they happened over a 40-day period of time. So that ought to center you right now. See, we wonder how many times did Jesus appear after his resurrection before he ascended into heaven? Well, Acts 1-3 says it was 40 days, maybe a little bit more. It says at least 40 days. And we count in the New Testament anywhere between 10 and 12 of them, depending on how you count them. Almost half of them are recorded in the Gospel of John. One third of them are mentioned so briefly in passing that you can't do a sermon on them. Even I couldn't. And, uh, and, and so we're going to be covering a lot of them just by tracing John's 
chronicling of these post-resurrection appearances. Fast fact number two, over 500 people, and the connotation is even at one time, saw Jesus in his post-resurrection state. They saw at least one appearance. Why is that important? Some people have accused the apostles and those who saw Jesus after his resurrection of either lying or hallucinating or just massive wish fulfillment that he had risen from the dead. This blows away all of that because psychologists have never, ever, ever discovered yet a hallucination shared by 500 people at the same time. So that would be a first, and the reality is, is that there's ample evidence that these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus really happened. It cements the truthfulness of the Christian uh, claim. And then third fast fact, and last one, is that each one, each post-resurrection appearance, now you're gonna love this, has a significant purpose. In other words, it's not just chronicling history. There's a reason that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recorded these, and John specifically. And again, I mentioned this earlier, each one is a signpost for our spiritual lives today. So you're going to see today, we're going to focus on peace and power and what that does in our experience of Jesus. And then next week, Kevin uh, Ewell is going to talk about uh, Thomas and the proof that Jesus gave Thomas when he appeared to him and the proof that you and I can have today. And then Rust in the following week is gonna talk about purpose and the post-resurrection appearances in light of purpose. And then when I get back, we're gonna talk about provision, promotion, providence. These are all things that you and I need in our spiritual lives today. You're gonna to get that out of a look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And so we begin today with our first look in John's gospel here, our first, uh, the first one we're gonna look at of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. It appears on the very day that Jesus was risen from the dead. He's already appeared a few times. He appeared to Mary Magdalene at the tomb and then to a bunch of women who were leaving the tomb and then most likely to Peter and then to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then here is how this appearance in the Gospel of John as we track John is recorded. And this is what we're gonna park in front of today. It says, so when it was evening on that day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the first day of the week, Sunday, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, the first thing you're gonna to want to dial into here is the setting that is being described because that's gonna help us understand very clearly and rightly what is going on here. 
The setting is you have 10 of the original 12 disciples all together. We don't have Judas Iscariot because he already betrayed Jesus and killed himself. You don't have Thomas, and we don't know why. It's just for whatever reason, he's not in the room yet, but he will be shortly, and that's what Kevin's going to look at next week with us when Thomas finally joins up with the other 10. So for now, it's the majority of Jesus's followers, and it says, let's understand this for just a second, that the doors were shut for fear of the Jews. The connotation is, and this is important, is that the doors were locked. The Greek means the doors were barred. They didn't have like, you know, slag locks back then, but they, 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 the doors were shut. Picture like a big post in front of it, you know, and, and, and they, they barred the doors because the disciples were completely beat up. They were afraid. Their savior was dead and buried. And even though they might've heard that he had resurrected, they hadn't seen any proof of that yet. And they knew the Jews were after them as well, as well as the Roman leaders. And so they're hiding out, just picture them, a, a fearful, huddled mess. And then Jesus appears. Personally and physically, he entered through locked doors. And I love how it says that it says he came and stood in their midst. You're going to want to hang on to that. It's the presence of Jesus with them. John's making that point. He stood in their midst. And, and then before we get to that whole idea of the presence, it's at this point as Jesus stood there that, that two things he says to them that will now change everything. The first thing he says, and he says it twice, and I know you caught this, is peace be with you. Verses 19 and then 21, peace be with you. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because I've done multiple messages on New Testament peace. I did one during the, the Fruit of the Spirit series, and then I did one when we were in John 14 just a, a couple of years ago. And so I've done a lot on peace. But just suffice it to say that this was a common reality in the New Testament when Jesus showed up, this experience of peace. He had already promised to give them peace. He said it just a week earlier when he was with them in the upper room. You remember this? He said to them, give me a click here, uh, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not let it be fearful. Of course, they didn't listen because they're in the upper room now, all fearful. But when Jesus was with them, they had peace and he imparted peace to them. And again, what you need to know here, gang, is that this is a personal peace that Jesus is talking about here. It's not world peace that he's talking about here, peace on earth. It's peace in you. It's peace in them. It's a peace that's not tied to circumstances. It's a peace that rises above them. So it's a, it's a calm assurance that you and I get when we get bad news from the doctor. It's a calm assurance we get when the job stinks. It's a calm assurance that we get when the kids go off the deep end. Should I go on and on with examples or do you guys understand this? It's a peace, as Philippians would say here, that passes, transcends all understanding. And again, many of you have experienced this, that when Jesus shows up in your life, you have peace. And again, we're going to move on here in just a second, but that's what you need to understand here. This impartation of peace, when Jesus appeared to the disciples back there in John, 
where he said, peace be with you, was not given just to them. Amen. This was a peace that would now continue on for any and all followers of Jesus. So anybody that came to him would get a part of this peace. It's all over the New Testament. He says in Ephesians 2.14, Paul does, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace. I like how he says that. He himself is our peace. When he's in the house, you have peace. And then Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus. So again, how do you access this peace? You trust Jesus. You believe in him, you follow him, and that as you do that, like the original disciples, you get peace as well. Now, hang on to that. We're gonna put all this together in just a few minutes and you're gonna like it. Notice with me a second key thing, going back to John and this appearance of Jesus that he says to them. And this one is found in verses 21 to 23. And we need to park in front of this because it's a tricky verse and some of you already caught it. That Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So he said, I give you peace and now I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. <laughs> now this is very interesting, if not a little confusing, right? Uh, and so let's understand rightly what Jesus is saying and doing here. Firstly, and this is the easy part, he is obviously imparting the Holy Spirit to them. He's introducing the third person of the Trinity to them, who will play a key role in their walk with God and in the formation of the church. Uh, most Bible experts point out that what's happening here is a precursor to the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit will be given to thousands of believers and, and be kind of the start, what will be the start of the New Testament church. So Jesus is doing that here as sort of upstreaming what's going to happen on the day of Pentecost very shortly. And yet don't miss, and this is the real point, that the Spirit is given to them with power or even for power. In other words, Jesus is telling them that he personally gives peace, but the Holy Spirit is now given so that they might have power. You don't want to miss that. That's really important. And this will be affirmed by, by Acts 1 verse 8 when it says, when Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And again, like here in John, he says power to be my witnesses. Power so that you might be sent and proclaim the gospel and have the power of God through the Holy Spirit going before you so that people would receive the gospel and it would be about them and God. And so in our passage here in John 20, that's the context here. Jesus is saying, receive the Spirit. I'm sending you. I give you peace. The Spirit gives you power. And then he says that that final phrase here, that has confused many, where he says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, and again, this is in light of receiving the Holy Spirit, being sent power. What is this saying here? And we need to talk about it for just a few minutes because this has thrown a lot of people over the years and is worth parking in front of. Some people, even entire Christian traditions, 
tend to see this as saying that human holy men have the power to forgive other people. In other words, it's Jesus putting his imprimatur on the fact that the disciples and people that would come after them in the vein of them, claiming apostolic leadership as well, have the power to forgive people on behalf of God, and then conversely, have the power to say, God doesn't forgive you, and we can sort of act as God. And, and it seems to be saying that at first glance. In other words, that there are certain followers of Jesus, if not all of them, because we could all be his disciples, that have the power to forgive and retain sins that people have committed to God. The only problem with this understanding of this passage, because it's only this and two others that even hint to this, is that it seems to go against, I would argue it does go against, the clear teaching of the rest of the New Testament. And I've taught you guys before that Scripture has to interpret Scripture. So you have to understand each individual Scripture in the Bible as a whole in light of the Bible's teaching. And when you look at what the New Testament says about God and forgiveness, one thing is made really clear. And that is that God and only God through his son Jesus can forgive you of your sins. Amen? I mean, Jesus couldn't have been more clear in Matthew 9, verse 6. He says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. And then he does that miracle and forgives sins. And that's all over the place. In fact, the entire point of the book of Hebrews is to cement the fact that it's Jesus and his sacrifice and only that that can forgive sins and that that's something between you and God. That's why we have to each individually receive Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins because it's the most personal, intimate decision you'll ever make in this world and it's between you and God. So to now say that there are holy men that can act as mediators and yet the New Testament said there's only one mediator between God and man and that's Jesus. So to say that we actually do it in Jesus' stead or for him or whatever, just doesn't make sense with the rest of the New Testament. So what is it saying? This is one of those passages where I wish that Bible translators would actually translate it a little bit more clearly. Because what most Bible experts agree is that when you look closely at the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, you realize that there's something going on here that, that changes everything, and, and you're gonna get it right away. There's two things in each one of these sentences going on, and that is that you forgive the sins of others, and then their sins have been forgiven them, and then you retain the sins, and, and, and their sins have, have been retained. And yet the word that's missing here that should be included in the trans, translation, and I'll read you a quote here that will settle it forever, is the word already. You're saying, what do you mean? The way this should read, because this is an aorist, as you'll see in a minute, which is a particular tense in the Greek, but here it's a perfect passive tense, which means it should read this way. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have already, before you did anything, been forgiven of them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have already, before you did anything, been retained. In other words, what's really happening here is that you and I give confirmation, affirmation or not, based on what somebody has already done with Jesus. 
That's what Jesus is affirming here. Let me read for you a quote from the expositor's commentary. This is a really, really trusted and good commentary. These guys are smarter than you and me combined. And, And here's what they say about this passage. They say the commission to forgive sins is phrased in an unusual construction. Literally, it is, and I quote, those whose sins you forgive have already been forgiven. Those whose sins you do not forgive have not been forgiven. The first verbs in the two clauses are aorists, which imply that the action is of an instant. The second verbs, however, are perfects and passives, which imply an abiding state that began before the action of the first verbs. Pause right there. So the second thing, their sins have already been forgiven, happened before you did anything. He he goes on to say, or they go on to say, God does not forgive men's sins because we decide to do so or, or, or do so nor withhold forgiveness. He says, because we will not grant it. He says, we announce it, we do not create it. This is the essence of salvation. And all who proclaim the gospel are in effect forgiving or not forgiving sins, depending on whether the hearer accepts or rejects the Lord as the sin bearer. Do you understand what he's saying there? I think it's pretty clear. And again, I wish the English translations would be more clear. But he's simply saying, or they're simply saying here, that what is going on here is that you and I give affirmation or confirmation. That's the power we have as we talk to people about Jesus, that based upon their response or not, we either get to joyfully say to them, your sins are forgiven, brother. Or, and I won't look at anybody here, we get to sadly say, if they reject Jesus, that that sadly speaking, your sins are not forgiven. We announce, we do not create. And again, going back now to John, what you don't want to miss here is that this power that comes from the Holy Spirit given to the disciples here is not just for them. The New Testament will go on to talk about the fact that the same Jesus who gave peace and gave it to all followers is now true for the same spirit who gives power, not just to the disciples, but to you and me today. That's really important. And I'll blow you away even more. Though the context of John here is power just in the sense of being sent and proclaiming the gospel. When you trace that word power and how the Holy Spirit uses power in the New Testament, you ready for this? you start to realize it's power in just about every area of our lives. You can't think of an instance where you are in need and God who loves you through his son Jesus and the impartation of the spirit is not right there wanting to give you power. And again, I know I've thrown a lot at you already today. I can see the glazed look in some of your eyes. So wake up. I'm not going to put this on the monitor, but just listen to this because this should encourage you, if nothing else. This power that was given by Jesus to the disciples, the same power that's given to us, is not just to witness. The scriptures go on to say it's power over sin. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, it will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's power to understand God, John 16, 13. And when he, the Spirit, comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
So any insights that you have to God, of God comes from the power of the Holy Spirit illuminating the word of God. It's power to persevere and hang in there. Hebrews 10, 36, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but who persevere to the end. God gives you that power. Did you know it's even power to pray? Some of you, you know, don't know what to pray. I'm going to help you with this in just a minute. You're going to love this. I'm going to help you learn how to pray a little bit more effectively today. But there's times where even I, I don't know how to pray or what to pray. Do you know that Romans 8 says that when that happens to me, the spirit is interceding in heaven with groans that words cannot even express. Whoa. So the Spirit's power is even helping me pray. Spirit's power helps you serve, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. One Spirit, many different gifts. And then we did a whole series on this. There's power to love and to relate to others like Jesus. It's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You get the idea. Jesus wasn't kidding. Receive the Holy Spirit. It's an act of faith, just like peace. You have to trust and follow. And as you do that, you will receive power. So add it all up, because we're going to put this together in just about 30 seconds. Jesus appears, and he personally gives peace. And then he imparts the Spirit who gives power. The exact same peace and power that is also given to you and me today, claimed and experienced by faith, even though he hasn't physically appeared to us. So he appeared to them, and as I said earlier, there's a purpose beyond all of this, and the first, this appearance was to give them peace and the Holy Spirit to give power, and you and I should not worry, because even though he hasn't appeared to us physically, we get the same thing. That's the point of this passage. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking at this point because you think like me. You're thinking, well, okay, Jamie, I see what you just did. Nice little spiritual parlor trick. You baited me with pointing out my longing to have my own special appearance of Jesus, which I did. And then you made the biblical point that the very things that the disciples got when Jesus did appear to them are the same things that I get today as I trust him. Peace and power, case closed. But what you don't get, Jamie, is that they still got an obvious jolt of his presence in addition to their peace and power. Any of you with me right now? And you might even be tempted to say, if you're a little bit snarky, which many of you are, by the way, you might be tempted to say, and Jamie, you mentioned earlier to hang on to that presence thing. Remember, you said Jesus stood in their midst and you asked us to hang on to that. Well, I'm hanging on to that. And they got Jesus standing in their midst. And so don't try to pacify me with this peace and power stuff. I want the presence. That's what some of you might be thinking right now, even if you couldn't verbalize it as well as I just did. It's in your soul. And, and I'd be the first to tell you right now, it's a great point. It, it truly is. And so let's wrap up by finally getting to the heart of the matter and what this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, complete with the inauguration of peace and power, what, what this practically accomplishes in our spiritual lives. Today. Let's talk about that presence thing because I believe there is an answer to that longing of your soul that, that though it won't be completely met till heaven, obviously most of us know that, but there's more hope here than we might realize because here's the point I've been leading up to our entire time. And that is that when we trust Jesus for peace and when we trust the Holy Spirit for power, which is the point of all this, we experience God's presence. 
even though he is not physically standing right with us. His presence still is. And when you allow Jesus to give you peace, and when you allow the Holy Spirit to give you power, I I can promise you, I can promise you, I've seen it too many times, you'll start to experience his presence. And though you're still going to (laughs) long for that physical presence, the presence that you do get now is enough. It really is. Instead of trying to prove that peace and power bring presence, I, I want to do something a little bit different right now as we wrap this up. We've got just a few minutes left. And, uh, and, and, and I want to do something I think we'll have some, some fun with. I, I want to talk about um, how I pray for people and why this understanding of peace that comes from Jesus and power that comes from the Spirit is so important in our experience of God and, and how it leads to a, an experience of his presence and how this is really the heart of how we should pray. Let me show you this. I put a little uh, graph up here on the, on the board that I think we're going to have some fun with. This, uh, this is how Christians pray today. And what I have noticed is that there are two polar extremes of how many of us pray. Not, not here to step on your toes, but let's just be honest today. There's two polar extremes of how we pray that I think reveal why our prayers, either one, go unanswered, or two, just seem weak. The two extremes are that there are plenty of Christians today that are unclear when they pray to God on what they're asking. And then there's the opposite extreme, that there's a lot of Christians that are unrealistic. So first, let's, let's deal with the unclear thing. I hear this all the time. You guys, let's have some fun with this. I, when I hear Christians pray, I smile because here's one of the most common prayers that I hear. You know, Jim here is hurting and, uh, and, and, and so, you know, actually Jim is sleeping. But anyways, uh, Jim's here right now and, 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 Jim, and, and Jim might be hurting and, and he says, hey, Jim, would you pray for me? And so I say, yes, Jim, I will. God, I pray that you would bless Jim. You ever heard a Christian pray that? I pray that you would bless Jim and I pray, God, that you would be with Jim. You ever heard a Christian pray? that you just be with Jim and, and, and Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And I think God in heaven is going, what in the world did you just ask me? What do you mean by bless? And what do you mean by be with? Really, I'm telling you, I, I know God enough to know this. The word bless, does anybody know in the Bible, means to make happy. That's what the word means. I mean, it's a very specific term. We use it as this kind of catch-all generic thing because we don't know what to pray for for him. But, but you know, if, if, he's, if he's going, if he needs a, a power of a healing because you're struggling with something in your life right now, and I say, God bless him, I'm really saying, God, just make him happy. Just make him happy in the midst of this. I'm not sure we know what we're doing. We're unclear. And then the be with thing, that's even worse. I think whenever we pray, God, would you please be with Ed? God says, Jamie, I'm already with Ed. I'm omnipresent. I'm everywhere. Read Psalm 139, Jamie. If you go to hell, I'm there. If you go to the highest peaks, I'm there. You're asking me for something I'm already doing. Dig deeper. So again, we pray for people and we mean well, but we pray these mamby-pamby prayers that are so watered down that we then wonder, why is our prayer life weak? Because you're not praying very clearly. And then you got the other extreme over here, and I gotta be careful, I'm getting excited, so let's settle down, I don't wanna get in trouble. (laughs) You have a whole group of Christians, (laughs) let me refer to my notes, that pray, there it is, unrealistically. In other words, we ask for things 
that God has not promised to give. They're not bad things, but you've all heard this. Again, I'll pick on Jim. Lord, I, I want to pray for Jim. He's got the surgery coming up right now. And God, I know that you're going to heal him. You're the great physician. You're the healer. And I claim it right now. I claim that Jim would be healed. And it is sealed in heaven right now. And it's a done deal. And if you would just claim it by faith, and then he can be healed. And Lord, that's my prayer. And I hear Christians pray that even in our church quite often. And you might not say it that directly because that feels kind of brash. But you pray things and you claim them by faith that are not bad things to pray. It's just that they're not promised things to pray. And so our prayers are unrealistic. So you have these two extremes. We're unclear or we're unrealistic. We're not really claiming promises. It's just desires and wants. They're good desires and wants. And could this be why many of us, one, hate praying, <laughs> And why when we have prayer meetings here, we get about 300 of you in a church of 7,000. And then could it be that this is why many of us just have a very weak prayer life? And this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus can change everything. Because if these are the extremes, here's the center. I had two experiences this week that'll show you this. I, uh, I had... People come to me all the time to ask them to pray. I'm honored by that. I get emails, phone calls, texts, verbal comments. You know, please pray for me, Pastor. I'm going through this, going through divorce. I'm, uh, you know, my kid's gone off the deep end. Uh, I'm financially hurting. Uh, my job stinks. Uh, I'm going under the knife. You know, all these things that, that people ask us, real things to pray for. Did you know that, that I pray very pointedly for you when that happens? And, and I pray very clearly. And I pray prayers that God has promised he will answer. Twice this week, I was asked to pray for some very serious, serious things. One's a kid on the East, kid, I call him, he's in grad school, kid to me, on the East Coast that, that is tied to our church and has been emailing me over the last couple of months and just asking for prayer for one of his family members that received a very, very difficult diagnosis. And uh, he's been asking me to pray and I've been trying to help him through this journey to understand who God is and where he is in this. And, and what I've been praying for him just nonstop, is that God, you would first, through the power of your Holy Spirit, give, give great power to his family member, that, that you would bring healing, that, that you would give the doctors great power and skill and wisdom, that, that you would touch every cell, it's a her and her body, and, and that, Lord, you would restore her to health. I, I pray those things. And, and again, whether God does a healing or not, here's what I do know. God wants to give power in that situation. And so I'll even pray that, Lord, if for some reason there's not a healing, would you give power? Because I know you want to in whatever way you can, whether it's power to persevere or power to understand something about him that will make all the difference. Holy Spirit, be unleashed. And I use the word power because that's what the Bible says. But then I'm also quick to pray in that same situation. And Lord, in whatever way you choose to give power, and I'm going to ask all of them, Lord, would you also give peace? Because we know that when you show up, there's peace. Give peace to, to this young man who wants to know you and follow you, who's all distraught about this. Would you, would you breathe, please, Lord, please give him peace that passes understanding. Give peace to the family there and to the family members. Because see, here's what I know as I pray that, is you and I pray peace and power over the people around us. God is gonna give them a sense of his presence. 
that as they open up to those things, the very presence of Jesus can be found. And again, some of you don't believe it. I get it. We're here to try to help you with your faith. All I can tell you is that as your pastor and friend, I have seen this thousands of times in the last 40 years where I've prayed for somebody who desperately needs help. And I don't complicate my prayers. Remember what Jesus said? He just said, don't pray with a lot of words like them babbling pagans do. And then he taught us the Lord's Prayer. That's the context of the Lord's Prayer. So, you know, he's not asking you to, to get in a prayer closet for three hours. Though if you want to do that, that's fine. But, but the idea more is to pray pointed prayers and be clear and biblical about what you're asking. And you can safely ask for God's power through his Holy Spirit on anybody in your life. And ask that God would give them his power in whatever form he wants to give. And it's even okay to say, Lord, might I suggest this form? In other words, when I pray for healing for people and for God's unleashing of power, though I know it's up to God whether he gives it or not, it's okay to ask that. Just be realistic about the fact that he gives the power in whatever form he chooses but then be quick on the coattails of that to pray for peace because God gives peace to all of his followers when we need it the most. And that knits together to the very presence of God. It works. I've seen this a thousand times. And though to the cynics among you, we might still fall just a little short of the personal, physical presence of Jesus. That'll have to wait till heaven. You will find yourself by, by laser beam focusing on peace and power, Jesus and the Spirit that knits together for the presence of the Lord, for you, for those you pray for, you will find that there is more of a presence of Jesus than you could ever imagine. That's a promise. Let's start praying that way. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. God, I thank you for this wonderful appearance of Jesus on the very day that he rose again that gave such great hope to the disciples. Lord, one thing we didn't really focus on in this passage is how when Jesus did stand in their midst and gave them that peace and power, they rejoiced at the presence of Jesus. And Lord, that's what we're all after. We're after a bolstered faith that can rejoice in your presence, that can feel settled and calm in the midst of the storms around us. And we know, God, you wanna give that. So God, I pray that as we each give focus to our own lives going out of here today and at Northridge Cactus Chapel and online, that God, you would speak to our hearts and minds. Help us, Lord, to be men and women who pray intelligently and pointedly and with full faith for those around us. The peace of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit that will allow them to experience your presence that will be enough until we see you face to face in heaven. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.